Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco in another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 14th, 2019. This is episode 2359 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. We have today listener feedback show because it is a Monday. And I have a really long list of stuff today. I'm going to try to cover more by saying less about each thing in about the same amount of time. So here we go. It's a tall order. This is the feedback I have for you today. One guy asked me how my aquarium hobby is related to modern survivalism, and he didn't do it like an ass clown, so says he, and I agree. Uh, how tax brackets actually work and why that doesn't make it not theft. Uh, Low-maintenance fruit trees for Zone 5 for a kind of cool reason. Using Facebook to sell things as a side hustle identifying flood danger zones that could affect your evacuation routes, an exception to the I hate 529 plans rule, a rare one, and I'll tell you why I actually agree with this, um, making your own bagged ice to save money if, uh, well, you need a lot of ice, that is, and uh, that it actually does work out if you do it the way that we'll talk about. Uh, thoughts on starting plants indoors and pot sizes, Uh, dealing with life insurance when you have health issues or other life circumstances that make it prohibitively expensive. A mead for an antelope hunt. Uh, getting family on board with training a dog the Spirico way, I guess. Uh, the benefits and limits of companion planning. And how to get news when, as Dr. Greg House says, everybody lies. Tall order to knock out in 90 minutes, but I think I can do it. We'll give it a shot here in just a second. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Ready-Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website at readymaderesources.com, and I do mean everything. From the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens and everything in between, you'll find it all at the company that does what it says and says what it does. ReadyMadeResources.com Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Making knives is one of those things that lead you to so many other things. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, we're going to talk about my fish hobby a little bit in the, in the lead segment today. And just that, the you know, you, you, you do something like that, like some of the projects I've done with building things and, and uh, creating certain things I can't buy, have even at my station in life, almost 50 years old, and having been a DIY type of guy and a hands-on handy guy my whole life, uh, still learning new things. And there's so many different things that can do that for you. Building knives is one of those things. Uh, you start learning things about working with metal. You start learning about using different types of tools, uh, how to design and come up with your own ideas. It can all start with something as simple as a knife kit. That's where everything's pretty much there. Maybe you pick out some handle material. You do the final fit and finish. You put it together, epoxy the handles on, sand it down, all that good stuff. Maybe make a sheath for it, sharpen it. And then it kind of opens the Pandora's box. Where do we go from here? What can we do next? Do we build another knife? Do we make a small part-time hobby, a side hustle business? Do we do just something for family and friends, building a few of them a year for select individuals? Do we make it a father-son kind of ongoing thing? Or do we take the skill sets and go do something completely different? 
But it can all start with KnifeKits.com. I really think it's a great way to get more hands-on experience. And this nation has been turned into a nation that calls a guy for everything. I think we need to go back to being a bit more like our grandparents, where we only called a guy when we really couldn't do something. We always at least gave it a shot first. If it can't kill you, or you're not going to have created an eyesore you're going to have to look at for the rest of your life, give it a shot. And, you know, to get started, give building a knife a shot. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Please remember, KnifeKits.com and many of our sponsors and over 70 different vendors do provide discounts for members of the MSB. Before we jump into all your feedback today, let's go ahead and uh, remind you real quick, you can help support this show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. Use the discounts, get your money back, and support the show. It's that simple. I'll keep it short and sweet today. Let's go ahead and jump on into it. So my first email today, and remember, if you want to send an email for a show like this, send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSPC is in the subject line. I mean, sooner or later, I will dig it out of the junk mail if it ends up there. And then uh, give me your question or your point. Bottom line, up front in one or two sentences, and then hit return, then give me the details. You do that, you're more likely to get through screening and thereby get on the air through the roughly, you know, close to, a, I'd say, 100 legitimate emails a day come in with things for the show. So if you want to get through that gauntlet, follow the procedure. All right, so this first one comes from Jim. <laughs> and Jim says, Jack, I've been listening to you a long time. Please give me a second here. Okay, that's not following the rules, but I'll do it, okay? I would like to know what your aquarium hobby has to do with modern survivalism. Okay, and then he says, so please right now understand I am not an ass clown. I would expect you to answer this question mostly with go F yourself and leave me alone. I'm not asking the question in that kind of an ass clown way, though. I just started thinking about all of the stuff you've talked about all the over the years. And to me, you, your, your, your stance is basically that everything is a potential side hustle. Everything has a potential to do something better in your life if you use it properly. So I'm seriously asking the question, if you had to answer it, is your aquarium hobby in any way something that could support a modern survival lifestyle? Jim, Jim, it's not an ass clown question. It's a great question. And I understand why you broke the rules because I do like occasionally post something on, you know, Facebook or Twitter or something. And it's like, Hey, here's what we're eating tonight. People are like, what does this have to do with survivalism? And they don't mean it the way you do. They mean it in some kind of asshole way. Like I'm obligated to never post anything unless it's about survivalism and their view thereof. Uh, but from the standpoint of this, there's a bunch of ways that we could look at this. I'm going to take it the way you did, though, as a side hustle. There are probably some other ways we could figure out how, you know, it. we'll, we'll get there. i, I got to go quick, though, to cover all the stuff i got today. So I've been doing a few videos on YouTube for those that don't. And, you know, my YouTube channel is pretty low, I guess, low uh, watch compared to how much the podcast is listened to. There's two different worlds there. People that listen and multitask on a podcast versus somebody that sits down and watches a video. But I've been putting some videos up of my fish stuff just for fun and just because I know a lot of you guys that listen to the show over the years, you like to see what's going on in my life beyond just the podcast. And I've been doing some stuff with these little three-and-a-half-gallon bowl tanks and some of my planted tanks and stuff like that. And just from those videos, I've had two people, actually three as of today, Asked to buy aquarium plants for me. And I'm like, I didn't say that I sell aquarium plants, and I really don't. And I probably don't want to get into that right now in my life. But for these three people, because all three of them are from this audience, I'm going to accommodate them. And I'm going to sell, 
I think when I figured the math out, probably somewhere around $35, bucks, $40 bucks after shipping is paid for, which they have to pay for too. So I'm going to put you know $40 bucks in my pocket just from doing a few videos and just from selling some plants that people are having a hard time getting. And, and there's some other reasons you'd want to buy from somebody that's growing their plants in a tank versus a store that I won't get into today. But basically because I have things that, that people can't find and get right now. So when I look at it that way... And I look at my tanks and I think, you know, there's there's 30 species of plants in my tanks. But there's probably five or six that are kind of plants that would work for everybody. Everybody can, that, that wants to grow plants, that can grow them, uh, that has a planted tank. You don't need to use CO2 injection, which we won't get into the technical stuff behind that. But the really beautiful tanks you see with like thousands of plants in them and all, most of those have CO2 injected into them because plants need CO2. And they can only get so much from the fish and in the water without an injection. But there's plants that do well. Also, lighting is expensive. You can look at a tank and go, wow, that tank's expensive. And you then go price a, a really high-end light for it. So, uh, you know, entry-level, mid-level lighting, uh, plants that grow with those two things. And there's, you know, in, right here in front of me, I can go one, two, three, four, five, six plants that work real well for that. Most of my plants, that's why I have them. But some of them are slow growing and some of them are a lot more quick growing. It would be inconceivable to me, especially if I set up a couple tanks like out in my greenhouse or something like that. And I only ran the plants out there in the warm time of year where it worked um, and just filled them like a third with dirt and threw minnows in there or whatever, and just grew plants, that I couldn't grow a crap ton of plants. And, and I don't see a world in which I couldn't sell uh, to the tune of a profit of two to $300 a month in plants, if I made any effort to do so. And some of these plants would be things like Water Sprite, Valsneria, etc. And one of the advantages a hobbyist doing that would have is, and see, this is about knowing an industry, right? You start to learn things. And these are things that are new to me, and I'm learning. And I always wonder why I had problems. Um, most of the plants you buy in the aquarium space are grown in what's called an immersed thing, uh, grow. And, and people think when they hear immersed, you think, well, that means underwater. No, it means the roots are immersed. It, it, it's, they're grown as emergent vegetation, if you know pond biology. So what that means is the roots are in an aquarium type or a tank or just water because they're water plants. But all the leaves grow above. And those leaves then can take it all the CO2 they want from the air and they don't get any algae on them, they don't have to worry about algae, and they can pump as much fertilizer as they want into those plants. Because it doesn't matter, there's no fish to worry about. So they ship it to you. So then you stick it in a tank. It's never been underwater. And the leaves start to melt and die, and then they start to change, the leaf form changes to a totally different looking plant. Now if you know that, it's okay. If you don't know that, it kind of sucks and you think you're doing something wrong. And you, maybe you are, and you don't know if you're doing something wrong if that's going on. If you get a plant that was grown without CO2 injection in water, then you get a plant that you put in your tank and it starts growing. It's used to that type of environment. So if you marketed that, and that was your thing, and you only had five or six plants, you, and the thing is you can't grow enough that way to keep up with these stores that do hundreds or you know, you know, thousands or millions of dollars in volume. You're never going to keep up with those guys. You're never going to be able to produce. You're going to be sold out all the time is what's going to happen. So what? So if you could put $500 a month in your pocket, $300 a month in your pocket, can that not change your life? Can that for, for the average American, can that not change your life? And the answer is it can. If you made $500 a month in any side hustle, whether it's this or something else, you took $250 of it and just put it in your family budget and put $250 in your retirement 
It's the difference between retiring on Social Security with a, with a, a fixed income and, and bitching at the little stock boy every time he changes the price on the milk, like he had something to do with it, like I used to deal with when I was a kid and I was a stock boy all those years ago, or retiring a millionaire. So that's how one way, and I, you know, I could probably come up with others, but that's one way that, yes, my hobby could be part of a modern survival lifestyle. For me, I'll tell you what it is. And I'm going to be doing a show on this soon about supporting the modern survival lifestyle. And some of that is hard, like economics. When I say hard, I mean concrete. Other parts of it are psychological, though. Um, Nick Ferguson, when he was here visiting my wife, and she's like, I don't know why he's doing all this stuff with fish tanks. He's got so much he has to do already. And Nick said to her, he doesn't have to do this. He gets to do this. So there's a real psychological advantage for me. Now, if you hate doing this stuff, then it wouldn't work for you. I never feel frustrated Even when I have to, like, like I have to take a couple hours on a weekend to do a bunch of work because I haven't done it in a while, I never feel like I have to do it. I feel like I get to do this. So that's good for you emotionally as well. Next up, I have an article that was sent to me by John in Moore Park on tax brackets. And um, I have a link in the show notes for you guys on this. You can read it yourself. Uh, and the article is, uh, is from the Washington Compost as I call it, uh, and it's, it's titled How Tax Brackets Actually Work, a Simple Visual Guide, and it explains that half of all Americans have no idea how tax brackets work, and of course, this is because our favorite idiot, uh, Oxia Cortez or whatever her name is, the, the new socialist uh, Congress girl from uh, New York City who, who has a degree in economics but cannot understand economics at all. I mean, her, her working understanding of economics... For someone with a degree in economics, is all the proof I need that the college system is completely screwed. That we should not be spending money to send our kids to college anymore. Really, we should not. Because you can't have a degree in economics and be this economically ignorant and have the value of that degree be anything. So she basically said she, she's got this Green New Deal and she wants to jack the top tax bracket to 70%. And I've actually been correcting people with this because even when somebody's an idiot, you should not be an idiot in your response to them. And I'm not saying like if somebody's a complete jackass, you shouldn't tell them to go F themselves. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if you're going to take what they say and mock it, you should understand it when you mock it. You can read the article if you want to, but basically what people hear when they say 70% tax bracket, they think that means, well, and this is what they've been saying with this meme about her, how much Congress gets paid and that she would have to pay $126,000 a year, 70% of her congressional salary. Let's see her pay that. And that's not how it works. And when you go to a new tax bracket, you don't immediately just jump in how much you pay. It's a pretty linear curve. And that's why we have what's called an effective tax rate. So there's a certain amount of tax on about the first $10,000 that you make. It's like 10%. It's the lowest tax bracket. So you pay 10% on that. Let's say you make another $10,000, so you make $20,000. You do pay a higher tax on the $10,001 up to the $20,000, but you still only pay the 10% on the first $10,000. And let's, it's not how it works, but let's just say that the next tax bracket was $20,000 to $50,000. If you made $25,000 in a system like that, and the tax brackets were 10, 15, 10, 15, 20, just to make it simple, You'd pay 10% on your first $10,000. Then you'd pay 20% on the $10,000 between $10,000 and $20,000. And then you would pay, uh, so you'd pay 10 on the first, then 15 on the second, and then the $5,000, $20,001 know, $20, up to $25,000, you would pay 20% on that. 
And your effective tax rate then would probably some come in somewhere around like 14-ish percent. I'm just guessing if you paid it on 100% of the income. So you see how that works. So even though now you're in the you're in the 20% tax bracket, you're effectively paying about 14% income tax. This is how income tax has always worked in the United States. This is what's known as a progressive tax system. The more you make, the more you pay, but you only pay, everybody pays the same on the same amount of earnings. So if, if I make 100 and you make 50, you and I pay the same amount of tax on the 50, I end up paying more on the $50,001 up to my 100 on the second 50. And they tell you this like, oh, see, see, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. We're only going to tax people making $10 million at 70%. And if they made $10 million and $1, they'd only pay 70% on that $1. And the economic theory is if you do this to rich people, what rich people do is they pay themselves less. So they don't pay themselves $11 million. They pay themselves $10 million because they don't want to pay that nasty 70% tax on that last million, you know, that last million dollars. And they put that million back into their business and they hire more people. Yeah, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. First of all, rich people never have a problem keeping money in their companies. They never have a problem paying for tons of their shit with money from their company and doing it with the loopholes that they wrote into the law so it doesn't get reported as taxes or as income to them. They, they, don't, they don't mind doing this. And that's how most people do it anyway. And when you hear somebody's worth like $4 billion, they don't have $4 billion in cash. They, they probably have three of the four billion is in common stock in their companies. So none of this works. But here's the, here's the thing that Americans have been lulled into. It's still all theft. You're still stealing money. You're still using force to take money from people that they rightfully earned. And it doesn't matter that this guy made $10 million and this guy made $10. If you take a dollar from the guy that made $10... And, and two million for the guy that made ten million dollars. It's all stolen money, and this is how they this is how they wage class warfare. Well, it doesn't really matter. It's going to affect you. And I'm going to tell you what the idea really is on this seventy percent tax rate on the top tax bracket. It is so that you will feel okay when they jack the middle class tax brackets back up into the forty and forty five percentiles. That's what it really is. The rich people are never going to pay quote unquote their fair share. They're never going to do it. And this is what, if, if I could teach Americans one thing to start doing to build more financial resilience in your life, please understand that the tax code, only about 5 to 10% tells you what you have to do and how much you have to pay. The other 90 to 95% tells you how to get out of it. And rich people will always focus on that piece. And, and, and no you know, progressive socialist woman or whatever fantasy these people have is going to fix it and close the loopholes and make the rich pay their fair share. Because the laws are not written by the Congress, they're written by the lobbyists who work for the rich people. It's a fantasy. But it is important that if you're going to have, and if you're going to actually have someone on the left, right for that matter, honestly, it doesn't matter, you know, to me, if you're liberty oriented, you don't identify with either group, but it's usually the left that wants to make these arguments about why a 70% tax rate is a bad idea, then you need to understand, well, what that, that tax plan would actually mean. And you don't need to worry about the 70%. You need to worry about the 40% the middle class are going to pay that we're supposedly helping here. Just, you know, knowing things is, is important. Was the old thing from G.I. Joe? 
uh, knowledge is power or something like that. And now you know it. Now you know. Knowing is half the battle. So uh, definitely worth taking a look at the article. Just know it is absolutely propaganda for the progressive movement. You know, oh, it's okay. This is how they always sell you on taxing people. But it's not going to be you that's paying the tax. So it's okay. You will always pay the tax in a variety of ways. Number one, you, they will always screw the middle class. They have always screwed the middle class. They're always going to screw the middle class. The entire system is requ requires screwing the middle class because there's more middle class than anything else. So that, that's, that's, it's necessary because you can't screw the poor because they're already getting the middle classes and the rich's money. So if you, if you, if you have a government, you, are they going to screw the middle class or the rich people? They're going to screw the middle class. Number two, when you actually do manage to make the rich people pay more in taxes, since they all own businesses to make their money, what they then do is pass on that expense through their product and service to you, and you actually pay for it. Just saying. Next up, Dylan says, I'm looking for a low-maintenance tree, preferably food-producing, that we can plant for a new baby coming in May. Details, Facebook community members of natural birth groups often describe planting the byproducts of birth with a new tree as a symbol of life, but we want to plant a tree that needs little maintenance as we transition from being a four-person family I live in Appleton, Wisconsin, Zone 5, mostly clay soil. I was thinking perhaps a mulberry. Best regards, Dylan. Well, Dylan, I would say only plant a mulberry if you want to have purple bird poop in a reasonable area around the tree. Because that's what you're going to get with a mulberry long term. You're going to have to plant our, our, a lot of the imported mulberries like Pakistan mulberry and stuff like that will not handle your, your cold. So you're going to have to plant a native, um, North American native um, uh, mulberry species. Uh, they're all black-fruited. Uh, you can't do something like a sweet lavender white-fruited mulberry or something like that, which is a fantastic tree. It just won't handle your cold. Um, so if you have a big piece of property and that tree is going to be like way up front and it's not going to have a bunch of birds pooping on your cars or your neighbor's cars or your driveway, then that's fine. Um, otherwise, that's what will happen. Just... Be aware of that. Um, my personal choice for you, for your climate, soil type would be an apple. Uh, no tree is a lot of work, really. Um, if you have a space, I would look at planting a full-sized apple. It'll grow into a huge tree. You'll never prune it. You might prune a little bit here and there, just if you have some limbs crossing. But if you never prune it from the day you plant it, you will never have to prune it. You won't have to do anything, and if you get a self-fertile variety, it won't matter if your neighbors have apples or not, and you'll get some fruit. You probably won't get any for four or five years, then you'll get a little bit, and it'll be like ten years in, you'll have apples that'll fall everywhere, uh, and you can make mead, you can you know, make applesauce, there's so many things you can do. You have good years and bad years with apple trees, but you won't have to do anything, and it will have no problem with your climate. And apples do really well where you live. There's there's some very good um, cideries uh, that have been opened in Wisconsin and Michigan and stuff like that recently. So that's one thing I would look at. You could go from seed, but you never know what you're going to get. So I would look for an apple on a full-size rootstock, and you could do no, there's no way you could do bad by planting Antonovka. Uh, Antonovka is self-fertile. Uh, I don't know what's on the list, and I actually should check that. Maybe they missed that one, because the Antonovka is definitely self-fertile. 
and the list doesn't have it. It's not on there. It's it's a list at Permies, Paul Wheaton's site. I should log in at some point and and add that for them. Um, it's a seven-year-old list, so I can understand why maybe they would have missed that. It's it's something that's come on a lot more. Antonovka is, is in Poland known as the people's apple. Um, it was also grown extensively in the Soviet Union, especially during you know the time of the Soviet Union when food was scarce. And it, it is carded to like 40 below zero. And it picks these big, beautiful yellow apples, and it, it produces well from seed. And it grows a huge taproot. When you see a, a larger tree that's been uh, bare root dug up, it looks like a giant carrot with a taproot on it. So Antonovka is probably where I'd go. But I have a link to a huge list of self-fertile apples that uh, you can check out, Dylan, at permies.com. Uh, and then I'll, I'll throw out another option for you. You didn't say if you were open to it or not uh, with growing a bush. But a, you know, pick a selected variety gumi, G-O-U-M-I. Uh, this is the Eliagnus uh, plant world. And uh, this is a nitrogen fixer. And it's like autumn olive, except the fruits are about the size of a cherry. And those things are fantastic. It wouldn't hurt to have a second variety with it. But since it's a shrub, not a tree, uh, it's really beautiful. The fruit is really good to eat. You'll have fruit in two to three years in significant quantities it tastes really good it does a lot of cool stuff it's different it's unique and it's it's not as long lived as a tree but as a shrub you know it's like a 25 year plant um and it can always then be replanted or regrafted or whatever if it becomes an heirloom to the family which is the intent here so that would be another thing i'd look at and and zero maintenance i mean just none uh next up uh I got another one here from John. John seemed like he took a vacation for a couple of weeks. Glad he's back. He's like a one-man research team for me. Uh, this is, uh, he says, Side Hustle of the Month, Jack. And it's uh, an article in Men's Health, and it's five insider secrets to selling anything on Facebook and making money. I love stuff like this. Here's what I'm going to point out about this. I'm going to give you just the bullet points. What is it? What are the things that you're supposed to do? Uh, the five things. One, pay attention to the quality of your photos. Number two, mind your keywords. In other words, make it clear what you're selling. List. So this isn't so much about being found, but listing things. So not keywords like SEO. Your dimensions, specs, weights, things like that. If you were looking at buying a fish tank, one thing you might want to know, well, what are the dimensions of it? Is it going to fit? Or a piece of furniture, is it going to fit? So make sure all that stuff's done. Um, respond promptly. And it says not only is Facebook tracking buyers' activities around your listing, it's also tracking your own activity, particularly how you interact with the marketplace community on Facebook. So you're more likely to get more exposure if you're seen by the algorithm magic as being a good responsive seller. Update your profile and use your friends. People want to know who they're buying from. Make sure your profile is clean and up-to-date, therefore incredibly important. Remember, these people may be entering your home, so no one wants to see a picture of your bedside uh, beside your medieval axe collection. They just want your couch. Um, so um, you know, make sure that, you, that people can figure out who you are because that gives people confidence. Um, and then be accommodating. Uh, so, you know, as far as meeting somebody, shipping, things like that. Here's what I actually like about this. A couple of things. Number one, this should be called how to sell anything, period, on the Internet, maybe. I mean, this is this is what you do to, to do a good job selling. This is really nothing to do with Facebook. It's just this is an article. They could run this article again, tweak it a little bit, and say how to sell anything on Craigslist. Right? You know, how to sell anything on eBay, how to sell anything on Etsy. 
That, that, that's, that, it really, this is just rules of business. But number two, it kind of points out something that, you know, we talked about, you know, my fish hobby today and how it could be turned into a side hustle and how that has to do with modern survivalism. One reason I'm so big on side hustles is just how powerful the concept is. I talked about making knives in the, in the advertising segment today with knifekits.com. Like, okay, you make a knife and all the things you learn making a knife then transfer to all these other things you can do. You do a side hustle, you make some money, so now you're spending your time making money instead of spending it. And you learn about business, and you learn about the psychology of selling and marketing, and you figure things out, and you figure out, do I really love this thing or do I hate this thing? We make career choices where we're like, I'm going to shift over to doing this, and we take this manu you know, monumental shift in our lives, we take this new job, we're kind of stuck with that for a while anyway. It's not so easy to just back up, but a side hustle, if you really don't like something, you just stop doing it. You know, and nobody gets hurt if you just stop doing a side hustle. You know, um, and when I think about selling stuff today, and I just I feel like people, if you don't want a business, I don't. That's that doesn't bother me. It, it, it's if people are like I wish I could figure out something to do. I'm like, why don't you just do something instead of trying to figure out what to do? Why don't you just go do something? Um, there's just so much that can be done today. It's 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 amazing when you think about how many how easy this can be. And think about this today, if you wanted to if you want to sell stuff. You've got Facebook Marketplace. You've got good old, still works, Craigslist. You've got eBay. You've got Amazon. And if it's any kind of craftsy, artsy thing, you also have Etsy. And there's a bunch of other places, just with those five. My view is, if you aren't selling something online, it's because you don't want to. That's why. Like, Because if, if you wanted to, you'd go figure out how to. And again, I'm not saying you should or that you have to, but I'm saying when people are sitting around going, I wish I could make more money, and, and they spend half of their day arguing with people about politics on Facebook, I'm like, you could, you could take your ideas on politics and make a book and sell it on Amazon. I mean, maybe you only sell five copies a month, but maybe selling five copies a month makes you $25 a month. That doesn't sound like a lot. It's not going to earth-shatteringly change your life. But go do the math and figure out if you have a residual income stream giving you $25 a month from something like a book, how much money would you have to have in the bank to earn $25 a month in safe interest? And then that is the value of that asset. That's the value of that asset. That's a way to look at it. Another way to look at it is what's the lifetime value of that asset? If it does $25 a month for you for five years before it kind of fades off into nothingness, do the math. 60 times 25, that's the value of that asset. Then retrofit it back into how many hours it would take you to write a book like that. Am I saying to go write a book on your view on policy? Probably not. That's probably, of all the ideas we talk about, probably the worst idea from an ROI. I'm just making an example here. There's so much opportunity. If you want more than you have, identify something and go for it. And go for it safely. So if it fails, you haven't spent the kid's college money or something like that. And then just do something else. And keep doing things until you find what you like. I did so many things online before I found this. So many things. In addition to work, making a lot of money. I always made a lot of money. I always. Um, for a long time, I made a lot of money. Since from the time I went into sales, so I had my time as a technician and things like that, my time in the military, my time in between the two where I packed boxes in a warehouse. Yeah, I lived on $5.50 an hour, so I didn't always make money. 
But once I got into my professional mode, I've always made a lot of money, and I still always had side hustles. And some of them I made a little money, some of them I made a lot of money, but one that didn't make me a ton of money, which was selling things like long distance and cell phones online, it didn't make me a ton of money, but it made me a freaking internet badass. It made me able to go to get a new website up and running and make Google my bitch. If I wanted to rank for 10 terms, unless it was something really, really competitive, like mesothemioma or something like that, where every lawyer's buying it, right? If it was just some typical stuff, I could make Google my bitch in a month. I would own Google for those terms. And I would own Yahoo. And I would own Bing or MSN or whatever the hell it is now. I would own those search engines. Even though it didn't make me a lot of money in of itself, what I had to learn to compete in that hyper-competitive market at the time Let me do all the things that I do now. So when you chase your side hustles, you don't know what it's going to teach you. You might not even realize at the time what it's teaching you about what to do and what not to do. So I love the idea of selling stuff on Facebook or anywhere. Next one is a really great, more prepper-oriented question. Joel says to me, what are the best ways of, to identify high, highway driving routes that are least likely to flood in a rain event for planning purposes in advance? And once flooding starts, what are the best real-time tools to identify your best route to get home? Is there a website which identifies flooded roads, etc.? Joel in Houston. Joel, I don't know a place that says, right now, this place is flooding. I don't know one. I do know one that will tell you where the flood zones are in advance. And you know where you go, and you know where you live, and you know if you have to evacuate where you would go. So then you can see if any of those flood zones overlap your evacuation routes and plan contingencies for them. It is run by FEMA. Not everything the government does sucks. And this 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 website is well done. Unlike healthcare.gov, they actually knew what they were doing when they built this website. And all you do is you go there and stick an address in, hit search, and it brings up a map, and it shows you all the primary flood zone areas. Now, that does, that, that does not mean that other areas cannot also flood. It does mean the flooding is going to start where those blue pools are. So I think that's your best tool to gain the mile-high view. The other thing is situational awareness. Whenever you're driving anywhere, okay, whenever you're driving anywhere and it rains, especially anywhere that you're going to be driving, if you're never going to drive there again, uh, I, I pay attention anyway, but you know how, how relevant it's going to be. But when you're driving around your, your town, your city, your state, You're going on road trips that you're going to take again, and it starts pouring. Look where the water is accumulating, and remember that. Because if you get an inch, and there's four inches of water on this stretch of road, that place is going to, I don't care if the flood map says it or not, that place is going to flood its ass off if you get six inches of rain. So every time there's a rain event, notice, pay attention, look around, gather your own intelligence. And then start, then start planning your routes around those areas if necessary. The reason this is such an important thing is flooding kills more people every year in the United States than any other weather event. The ones we think of are hurricanes, and usually what kills people in hurricanes is flooding and tornadoes. Those are the two we think of the most. Tornadoes are terrifying. They leave a huge aftermath, and they're just something that when you think about The power of a tornado, it is, it is scary. We look at water, we see water all the time, we don't realize how much power water has. It's incredibly powerful. 
So I, I think in addition to planning your evacuations, find out if you're in a flood zone, and you probably know from your insurance, your homeowner's insurance, if you're in a flood zone, or you're near one, and if you are, you need to think about ways that you would mitigate flooding if it happened to you. So th that's my best advice for that at this time. If somebody knows of like a real-time app about flooded roads and stuff like that, um, I I'd love to hear about it. Of course, one of the things that you would want to do is make sure you're using a good scanner app or a good emergency response scanner and monitoring EMS. Because if there's people getting stuck going through flooded roads, you're going to hear about, you're going to hear those guys talking about that. And that will give you a sense of intel as well. Uh, next up, I have uh, somebody asking me about an exception to my absolute loathing hatred of 529 educational plans. Before I read this, let me explain for those who don't know what a 529 plan is. You invest money for a college education in a 529 plan. That money grows tax-free in that plan. And then when you take that money to pay for college or any other approved educational platform, uh, it, it doesn't get taxed when you take it out either. It's kind of like an IRA, uh, a conventional IRA, except you don't get to deduct your, your, your contributions. It's basically a tax-sheltered savings account for college education. It is primarily used by parents to save money for their children because financial liars all over the country advise people, well, I want to do, I want to save money for Tammy's, you know, college. Well, we have a 529 plan for that. So that, and they like buckets. Financial liars, they call them advisors, like buckets to put money in because they get paid on all the money under their management. So if they get you putting money into multiple buckets, even if you stop putting into one bucket, you're probably still putting it into another. So their book of business continues to still get larger and larger. That's one of the reasons they take this approach. Also, to be fair to financial liars, is most of them don't know they're liars, and they're really good people, and they're trying to do their best, and they're following their training. And it sounds good. The problem is you lock the money up where the government gets to tell you, yeah, that's, that's, that's valid education. Yeah, you can use it for that. No, no, you see, that's not valid. No, you want to go learn to fly helicopters. No, you can get a degree in aeronautics, but you actually want to learn to fly a helicopter. No, we can't. You can't use it for that. It's not approved. So then you end up paying a huge penalty to get the money back out, even though you didn't get a tax break for putting the money in in the first place. And there's various plans. And some of them are really shitty, and some of them are not as shitty. Uh, some of them have very limited investment options, and some of them are completely unlimited in what you can invest in with them. Uh, which if you're going to do any of them, that's what I would recommend. This one's not. I had somebody already talk to me about this from Indiana on the blog, and I still didn't like the idea because you're saving for a kid. So if you're putting money in in the scenario you're about to hear and your daughter uh, 20 years from now wants to go do something that the 529 plan is not approved for, you're going to take a lot bigger hit than you got to get the money back out, and that money is going to do less for you in the future, and there's no way to backfill it. But the guy said he understood that and he was okay with it. So I'm, I'm always fine if you're fully informed, if you're fine. I'm always okay with that. Uh, this case, though, I actually agree with Zach who wrote in that it makes sense for him to use one because he's using it for himself while he's currently going to college. So here's what he says. Would you make an exception for a saving in a 529 uh, using the Indiana College Choice Direct plan and you are going to school currently? Um... I think I may have found the exception in the no-not-529 rule. In general, I'm on board with you. However, the Indiana plan seems a bit different than all others. It has a 20% tax credit, not a deduction, but an actual credit for every dollar you put into Indiana's 529 plan, up to $5,000 of contribution annually. There is a savings account option that's FDI-sure. It pays nothing in interest, but it's completely stable and no risk. 
The money is immediately available to spend on college expenses. There is no length of time the money must remain in the account to be eligible for the tax credit. I currently have MBA expenses that exceed $5,000 in annual contributions to the 529. All the money that goes into the plan immediately comes out of the plan to pay those college expenses. I also pay more than $1,000 in state tax annually. Fees are minimal when choosing a savings account option. Based on the scenario, it looks like the state of Indiana is subsidizing me at about $1,000 a year for my MBA if I simply run the money through the account. Uh, I'm a Rothbardian voluntarist and not in favor of the state program. However, if I can liberate stolen money from the state, why wouldn't I do that? Perhaps I'm not seeing a hole in the strategy. Interested in your thoughts? Uh, Zach uh, from graceandtruthfarms.com. Uh, P.S. Thanks for pointing me to Curtis Stone and Darby Simpson four years ago. Right now we have a successful vegetable, chicken, pork, beef, and egg small-scale farm. Uh, it's not a full-time living yet, but we had 60000 in sales in 2018, so we are getting close. Badass, Zach. That's awesome. No, Zach, you're right. Assuming you're going to pursue your MBA and all you're doing is funneling money through here, and you're getting a thousand dollars a month, a year back in your pocket, and even with some fees and loss through the system, let's say you're putting nine hundred dollars back in your pocket. Hell yes, hell yes, hell yes, hell yes. The other guy that wrote me said this. He said basically he's doing the exact same thing, and he's getting a thousand bucks off his. And you understand what he said by a credit? It means you literally get dollar for dollar off your state taxes if you live in Indiana. But he's doing it for his kids. And uh, the way I would look at that, if it lets you save that much more money for them, fine. If you're just doing it to get your taxes back, I, I, I just don't like it. I just don't like the fact that 20 years from now, your daughter could be sitting there looking at $50,000 that her old man put away for her. And then the government gets to decide if she can have it all and tells her the rules for having it all. Moving it through, and you already know it's going to be spent, I don't have a problem. My problem with 529s used for children is we're making assumptions about a kid that's still shitting their pants involving their higher education requirements. There is no way for us to know that, and this is a symptom of the all-children-should-grow-up-and-go-to-college culture we have created that is a culture built on lies. But, you know, I, I don't know. You make your decision on this, but I definitely agree with Zach. A uh, quick one here from Dylan. Dylan says, use what you have and save big on ice. Due to the two deer I harvested this year, I needed a bunch of ice to keep them cool while I aged them, too warm to hang up here in Mississippi. I started out with store-bought ice bags, which add up quickly at a couple dollars a bag. In parallel, I started filling Ziploc bags with ice from my ice maker. It's max ice setting, barely keeps up with the melt, but it did the trick. I started thinking about how to better store ice ahead of time and filled up some extra Ziploc bags once the deer was processed. But the Ziplocs are A, expensive for the purpose, B, clunky, not designed to close uh, around five pounds of ice. So I looked it up on Amazon and found that for $17, you can get 100 reusable ice bags that you can fill with ice from your ice maker. That's $0.17 cents per 10-pound bag. If I only use it once, call it $0.20 cents if you add the water and electricity. Still stupid cheap. 
Uh, I'll be way ahead of the curve next winter. I won't ever have to go to the store to get ice for summer parties and cookouts ever again. I have frequently used, uh, I am, have more, of a more frequently used form of thermal battery for the deep freezer. If you're interested, uh, here's a link and I'll put a link in the show notes for where you can get these things on Amazon. I like the idea as long as you have the deep freezer space for it. Generally, by this, for, like a couple months back from now with harvesting and hunting and stuff. I ain't got no deep freezer space. My thermal battery is meat. That should be a t-shirt. My thermal battery is meat. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that could be taken the wrong way, though. There's some way to format that. Anyway, I love the idea. Um, I think there might be other ways to do it. Um, I know people are going to start screaming food safe, but it seems like trash bags cost less than that. Uh, but the bags are, you know, they're, they're made for the purpose. They have a pull string and whatnot. Uh, and if you're careful with them, yeah, you could reuse them quite a few times probably. So I'll put that link in. And I think the, the more important thing here is the thought process. Instead of going to get something, can, can I already create that for myself somehow? And, you know, here's another thing, right? So a person that, that, that pragmatically looks at this and says, okay, let's say that the guy would have had to buy 10 bags of ice. That he didn't buy. And making his own ice saved him 20 bucks. It's only 20 bucks. But this mindset, always be frugal, never be cheap. That's one of Spirico's laws of life. Been teaching you that, I guess, that for 10 years, right? It adds up. It's 10 bucks here. It's 20 bucks there. It's $5 here. It's $3 there. It's $15 here. And this is how most Americans spend themselves in a debt. They don't do it $10,000 at a time. They do it $10 here, $20 there, $15 here, $5 here, $3 there, $0.50 cents there, $0.75 cents there. I'm not talking about being a miserly Scrooge. I'm talking about just a, a, a fundamental logical analysis of your life and saying, hey, if I do this, I save $20. Bucks. And then say, you know what? I had that $20. Bucks. Now let's take this $20 bucks that I saved. Let's pretend I magically spent it. And let's put it over here in the category of money that works for me. Or let's say I was a good boy. I saved $20. I get $10 on my piss away account. I'm going to put $10 over here in my Money That Works For Me account. And if we do that throughout our whole lives, we had millions of dollars. I know it sounds crazy. We had millions of dollars to our retirement. It's so simple. I don't know why we're not teaching. I do know why we're teaching people not to do it. Our entire system is based on debt slavery. Folks, you better get into your head. You are a slave. You are not free. Our country is not a free country. We are a, 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 a slave society where slaves polish their chains and, and argue about who's the better master to live under. And the reason it's important to realize that you are a slave in society is so that you can be as least like a slave as possible. And one of the multitude of ways you are controlled is through finance and economics. It's actually the primary. It is second to legislation. Legislation is number two. Number one is finance and economics. You have to be, I've said this before, you have to be like the pig, not the cow. The cow is a willing, domesticated animal. It likes to be milked. It likes to be led. Once it understands that's a fence and I'm supposed to stay in the fence, it will stay in the fence. The pig will check the fence every day. And if it finds a crack, it will, it will get out. And if it ends up in a larger fenced area, it'll start checking that fence. And that's how you have to live. I can't go deeper than that today, but this is one example of being the pig, not the cow. And, and, and always being frugal and never being cheap. Well done, Dylan. Uh, next up, we have a question on starting plants indoors, and it's certainly getting to be the time of the year to get your grow lights going and, and, and do this with peppers and tomatoes especially. 
um, says, Jack, I'm starting, this is from Jason. Jason says, Jack, I'm starting bell pepper seeds. They intend to put them in pots so I can overwinter them in the house. What pots would you use, and what would your soil mix look like? Jason, uh, P.S., not question-related, but I think you'd appreciate the YouTube channel Aquarium Co-op. Yeah, I, I do, actually. I buy a lot of stuff from those guys, from, I should say, Corey over there. Uh, he's a really great guy. You want to talk about an example of turning a, a, a hobby into a side hustle, man. You, you check out what he's done and what he's built, a multi-million dollar business uh, in, in the aquarium world. Um, so, yeah, I, I know about him, but thanks for mentioning him. And I put that out. If you like fish and the fish stuff I talk about, then check out Aquarium Co-op on YouTube. Um, so if you want to bring them in the house... You're looking at something like a five-gallon size and not a five-gallon nursery size, like something the size of like a five-gallon bucket or bigger. If you, you know, Basically, that plant's going to live in that pot. Uh, then then I, that's where, where you're at. So you know, kind of that's your, your ballpark area. And the bigger, the better, because the more space for that root. You're talking about taking a, a perennial shrub, and so you have to think about it not like a pepper plant when we think of plants, You know, as we uh, we grow peppers as annuals in the United States, most of the United States anyway, we think of them as plants, as a, an annual plant. But they're really a perennial shrub. So when you think of anything that's going to last multiple years, this is going to get a very significant root system on it. So kind of the five-gallon container I would look at as a minimum. And uh, this is a really good hack. It's something I, I started talking about 10 years ago when I started doing the show. I think in the first season I started talking about it. One of our listeners, uh, who I haven't heard from in a long time, a little bit worried about him, actually, Brent in Prince Edward Island, uh, Canada, was way up in the tundra damn near. And uh, he's been, you know, at one point anyway, had, had plants that were five years old uh, that had been taken in every year. You prune them back and you take them in, and they don't do that great, but they do okay. And then when you bring them back out in spring, they blow up. Uh, you kind of give them, it's, it's kind of like being a little deciduous. They kind of lose a lot of leaves and stuff like that. But they, they take all that reserve energy in that root system, and you have peppers before anybody else does. There's another way to do it, too, though, and it, to get into kind of a biannual cycle. So uh, you do the first year, you, you bring them inside. And the second year, when all danger of frost has passed, take that plant and put it in the ground. It will explode. Because all of a sudden, instead of being trapped in this container with limits, those roots will be able to go anywhere and everywhere. Now, you got to kind of untangle them, tease them out, just like you do with a tree. You're going to have circling roots, etc. But when they take off in the ground, oh my, now they're going to boom, drive down there, and boom, here's my second year huge crop. Will that season start plants in smaller containers like you would typically for setting out in the garden? And then when you put the big plant out, put the little plant in the container. And every other year you have a group of plants that are going to be massive. You put a plant like that in the ground, it's very possible for that plant to get five or even six feet tall. Yes, peppers can get that big. I've got some videos, old school videos, back when I lived in Arkansas, where I'm standing next to jalapeno pepper plants that are taller than me, grown in a single season, by the way, in hoogle beds. So there's a lot that can be done with peppers like that. So that's another way. Real quick, though, when I first read this question, I read it as for starting plants that are going to be planted outside. Uh, so I wanted to address that too really quick. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they do their plant starts is everybody wants to start like 300 plants. You're never going to use 300 plants anyway. So everybody wants to get like 144 cell or a, a 76 cell or 72 cell, you know, with these little bitty things and you're, you're millions of plants in there. 
I, for starting plants that are going to go into the garden, like to go somewhere between a four and six inch pot. Yeah, that means I can start a lot less plants, but I would rather put out a dozen to two dozen really healthy plants than, you know, five or six or seven dozen crappy little plants that aren't going to do very well. And we, there's a lot of plants that we really don't need to start early. Squashes and beans and stuff. They're just better off putting the ground. So there's only a limited amount of plants that we need to start early anyway. So I, I like to go with a bigger pot, let those roots get really massive, bring those lights way down. As, as low as you can make that light without burning your plant, depending on the kind of light you're using. And then you get bushy, strong, mean-ass little plants. You don't want tall, spindly, weak-ass plants. You want... Think of it like a like like you know for a wrestler. Wrestlers generally tall, skinny guys are not good wrestlers. Little stocky guys, little mean ass stocky guys. That's what you want your plant. You want your plant to go out there and kick some ass. Make a think like you know like a like a Filipino guy, man. I remember this guy I went to school with. He was a Filipino descent. Man, I didn't want to wrestle that guy. I had 20 pounds on him. I didn't want nothing to do with him. He was incredible. That's that stocky advantage that you got with plants that really works. Let's take another one. Uh, this was a good question, though. Next up from uh, Will. Will says, what or how do you think a person should account for uh, to ensure as far as preparedness primarily for life insurance? I sat down with multiple uh, agencies over the several years and have multiple quotes for both whole and term life. None of my options are very good. I do fall under some small demographics being labeled a disabled veteran. Uh, combat veteran with multiple physical and mental health disabilities, including PTSD, TBI, and a plethora of heart and endocrine issues. So my circumstances are rare, but I fear common uh, among a lot of veterans and possibly more groups. I came up with a figure of 10 years of living expenses at our current budget minus what will be my wife's benefits once I'm gone. The numbers rounded out to about $250,000. I quickly learned that that amount of term life insurance would cost me $360 a month. So Uh, you know the cheapest was through USAA, and from them I learned, or at least was told, that a large portion of the factor was suicide risk, which after only one year the policy would pay. I asked if they would waive that provision and told they couldn't write the policy without it due to my current diagnosis. Uh, I'm not going to gripe about this, but I feel it's relevant to my questions uh, for me and for similar circumstances. I've been working on several forms of resiliency for my family, including trying to get our seven-acre homestead paid off really quick. Uh, probably in the next five years, so maybe my wife would choose to stay in our home versus feeling press of sell. But that the thought and concern I have is that I can't guarantee five years. So would a super expensive insurance policy still be practical? Uh, and what should I account for with such a policy? I'm super guilty of getting tunnel vision, so I'd appreciate any feedback on just what your opinion is on figuring the cost-benefit when it comes to insurance. Thanks for everything, Will. Um, well, Let's do some math. If we take um, about $360 a month, as, as huge as that is, and if you were saving that in a mattress, so you're going to get no interest on it, how long would you have to save $360 bucks to end up with about $250,000? And the answer is 57 years. So... And I don't know your health, and I don't want to presume too much, but you're saying I can't guarantee five years. If I really felt that way, and I had somebody that I would put as dumb enough to sell me insurance for $360, if I didn't think I was going to make it another five years uh, for that amount of money, then I would see it as an investment in my family's future, and I'd figure out some way to pay for it if I really felt that way. I don't think that you do, because I think if your health, like no one can guarantee anything, dude. Like I can't guarantee five years. I could get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow. 
You know, I've been saying it for 10 years. It ain't happened yet, thank God. But, you know, for some reason, it seems like they follow me. These big trucks follow me around. Somebody emailed me back in the day when I was in Arkansas. and said, why do you always say a gravel truck? Like I said, I saw a gravel truck. I thought Satan was driving it. I thought it was always here to get me because you always say that. And uh, uh, it's because I lived where like gravel trucks passed me all the time on the way to my office up there because it was a quarry. And now I have a materials place I buy a lot of stuff from. And they're not gravel trucks, but there's huge, you know, tanker trucks and dirt haulers. So I guess that's why I've always brought that up. But it could happen to anybody. Um, and then understand what life insurance is, is the company is betting that you won't die. Now, it's not, so I've heard people say, and you're betting that you will. No, you're, you're insuring in case you do. But the insurance company makes out best when you don't die during the term of the policy. With whole life, you're going to die, and they're going to pay. But those systems are set up so that they always win unless you die young, which is what term is for. Okay, So there's a couple ways to look at this. One, my guess is to try to keep costs down, you probably looked at 10-year term. I do believe you can buy shorter-term life insurance, but I don't know going below. I've never shopped for anything less than 10-year, so I don't like dropping a five would get you anywhere, especially if they have suicide risks. The underwriter's concerned about that. And so you're, gonna buy, you know, you're obviously not going to buy a year because if you were going to commit suicide. But I, I do understand the way this could work, that insurance companies would be afraid that a person that's already on the edge, and God, dude, if you are, go get some help. Go get some help. We just talked about this with, with our guest last week. Um, so I'm assuming you're not, that they say that and you're not here, right, with my counseling on this. But somebody that is, you can see if, if they went and bought a huge life insurance policy and it gone past that year and they were thinking about it anyway, they're thinking, man, I can't provide for my family, I'm, you know, whatever problems they have. And they think, you know, if I just off myself, then my family becomes a millionaire, You can see where that might make it an easier decision to make a bad decision for them. And then the insurance company, of course, loses there. So they're looking at your total health and saying, here's how much it costs for us to assume the risk that, that you're not going to make it to the end of this term. So another way that you could cut the cost of insurance is cut the, the, the amount of coverage. Okay, so you need a quarter million to do 10 years of living expenses plus there's SSI benefits or whatever. Uh, maybe you do five. Five years is not optimum. I generally recommend 10 years of expenses. I generally recommend replacing 10 years of income, at least. Uh, and then in many cases it is, well, it's okay, it's 10 years of expenses because the way you're living right now, your expense exceeds your income. So it's one or the other, whichever one's higher. But there's a lot of things I recommend that not everybody can do. So maybe you, you, you reduced it to like $100,000, $125,000 in insurance. If you pay the place off over the next five years, then also that $125,000 goes a little further, doesn't it? And so I also think that when people do have issues like you do and you're dealing with these mental issues, the more you have to do, the more you can be meaning, you know, have impact on other people's lives, the better you feel emotionally and physically. And so... I think with this, I would say also start working on you. And whatever physical disabilities you have, okay, you have those. But whatever you can do as far as you know rehabilitation and physical activity, go do that. Push yourself, and you'll feel better. And if you have serious problems, then you know do please get counseling. Please. It's available to you. Go get it. Take, take advantage of it, Will. Um, and... 
you know, think about your life. And I don't mean from this, like, you know, critical analysis of, you know, how much I mean. I'm talking about, like, your, your budget and your life. Are there ways you can reduce expenses and improve the quality of your life? Sometimes you can. Sometimes you really can. You know, if there's something that you're paying for and you hate or something you're paying for, you think you like it, but paying attention to it makes you angry, think about eliminating it. And, and, and that's all I can really do here. I can't give you a magic solution to this one. I really can't. Uh, I hope that's helpful. And again, one more time, Will, if you, if you are the suicide risk they say you are, please do something about it. Because I think one of the biggest problems people have when it comes to a point where they, where they decide to take their own life is they do not think about the pain and the lasting pain that they will cause. Um, what's on the other side? None of us can know. We all think we know, but none of us know. Um, and either, you know, you're gone or there's some sort of an afterlife, but either way, your problems here are over, but the problems you create when you take your life is why I think suicide is one of the most selfish things that a person can do. It really, it's a horrible thing to do to people that care about you. They will never understand why you can leave them a book that explains why, and they will never understand why. Because it will never make sense. I will put the exception in here. People that have terminal cancer, that have another week of absolute misery and pain left to them, that choose to use a euthanasia type ending of their life, I totally understand that. And I can't say that I wouldn't do it myself. In fact, I have a predisposition to believe. You can never, that's another thing. Well, I know that I would. No, you don't. You don't know what you're going to do when you face death until you face death. But I, I, I feel like it is most probable that, you know, if I had fought the good fight, I had lived as long as I could with any quality of life, and I was at a point where I, all I had was another week of laying in bed and shitting my pants and being in pain and using as much morphine as they'd let me have and still being in pain, I'd probably say, okay, you know what? It's inevitable. I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be done. And I think people do get to that point. And I think one of the, like, you know, how selfish suicide is, I think another point is when people get to that point and there really is no hope and they want to go and people don't want them to go and guilt them into not going, I think that's also selfish because you're doing it for yourself and you're not thinking about what that person has to look forward to, which is, you know, another few days or a few weeks of just absolute misery. Um, there is a point that the human body is done and the human spirit is ready to separate from it, however that happens. Anyway, let's take another one. Next up, I have a feeling I'm going to be coming back to this question when I get some more information from Matt, who sent it to me. And I have a feeling we will be hearing from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, and we'll go to another level with this. I wanted to quickly prime it today. Matt says, because of you, I'm bottling my first batch of mead, and I'm hooked. It's a basic mead, honey, water, and yeast, but it is delicious. As I plan future libations, I am looking for a mead recipe to kick off this year's hunting season. My uncle and I are planning an antelope hunt in Wyoming this October, and I'm looking for something special to enjoy around the camp. I thought a mead dedicated to the occasion would be a nice touch. Whether it's a personal recipe or a traditional mead for this hunt, it would be appreciated. Feel free to kick this to be whisperer if you'd like to. Uh, side note, I'm re-listening to all your Bug Out Trailer episodes, and I'm doing a custom pop-up camper built for the trip. It was free and needs work anyway, so why not include the wisdom of Spirko and Harris in the build? Thanks for a great podcast for all you do, Matt, from upstate New York. All right, Matt, so I'm not sure of the recipe. I'm going to give you some guidance, though. I always do my small batch mead, three pounds to the gallon. I've done the process enough. I'm not going to reiterate it today. What I would do if this was me, I would find a, uh, a honey maker. Uh, 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 you know, a, a person that runs an apiary in Wyoming. And you might just contact Michael Jordan about this. He might want to be able to sell you some honey, which would be cool. 
One of the things that makes a thing like a mead or a liquor or a beer or anything really enjoyable in the type of environment, guys sitting around a campfire in Wyoming or at a lodge in Wyoming, actually separating themselves from their daily lives and doing something primal like hunting is the story that goes behind it. So just the story, I listen to this crazy guy on the internet named Jack Spirico. He talks about all these cool things, including making mead. And he's got this really big dude out in Wyoming called the Bee Whisperer. He lives kind of around here where we're at. And I got some of his honey to make this mead recipe. You see what I'm saying, right? And I would I would look to that, and I would talk to Michael and make sure, like, I want you tell me, I want to buy some honey from your hives that you're keeping in Wyoming, right? That would be one thing. Um, or, like, if you wanted to just get a honey from out, I would look for, like, a clover honey from Wyoming. That, that's kind of where I would go with this. And then when I think of Wyoming, I think of, like, these big, sprawling plains and stuff like that, especially for antelope. And there's a plant that as cold as it gets in Wyoming, grows all the way up into Wyoming and all the way down here into Texas, all the way into Mexico and Central America, the prickly pear cactus. Now, I've made prickly pear cactus mead ever since I read Charlotte Papazian's New Complete Joy of Home Brewing, which was 25 years ago, or maybe older than that. And I've made it the way it is in that book with using the fruit. But somebody came here visiting me, and they brought me a quart of prickly pear fruit juice. And I used one quart. And three pounds of mesquite honey and made a gallon with that. And that was one of the best meads I've ever made. It is a traditional thing to take the cactus and combine it with mesquite. And that makes sense. But I think there's a lot more clover in Wyoming than you would find mesquite. So a clover and prickly pear cactus fruit meat I think would be fantastic for this. That said, I kind of want to play a little bit more into this. I'm going to bounce it over to Jordan for a future expert council show. I'm going to see what he says, see what ideas that gives me, and then I am going to kind of take those ideas and put them back through the Spearcoizer and push it back out as another idea. But that would be where I would go. I'm going to get this to Jordan for this Friday. Hopefully he'll have an answer to me because I would get on this mead now. I can make a mead from first pitch of yeast you know, to bottle in 60 days, no problem. But, man, something like this, the more age you put on it, the better. Whatever you decide, I would make at least two gallons, and I would bottle a batch for this season, and I would save a batch for next season, and then every year make a new gallon and have that, that then you've got about a year and a half of age on it, uh, especially if it comes out really good. I'm going to tell you this, prickly pear cactus meat, guys, yeah. It ages. It ages like freaking scotch in a barrel, man. It is just one of the best meads to age you will ever drink. So that's the direction I'm going to point you for now. But, yeah, I'll get this over to Michael. Uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Next up from Chris. Chris says, how can I get my significant other and the kids on the same page with printing our one-year-old shepherd cross? Uh, details, my wife is from the school of drag the dog to the scene of the crime and whoop his ass dog training. I tried to explain the concepts you outlined in episode 1797. The dog isn't understanding, and this is abusive, and leads to further behavioral programs, but she'll have none of that, and thinks I'm just letting him get away with shit. The biggest issue is we're up against here is that we never catch him in the act. We aren't home. He is on prowl for shoes, has destroyed our worm bin. Uh, canvas funnel type worm bag, uh, one missed open alarm and it's bedlam. One, one missed open door and it's bedlam. Uh, we both work full time. We do not give the dog the outlets he needs because we are constantly getting the kids to practices, working late and otherwise engaged. This was a case of she wanted a puppy, sent me a picture, uh, while I was in a dentist chair and I told her it was going to be her responsibility. A year later, we have a dog. 
That's clearly going to be on me. Any advice you have in communicating effectively what we need to do or how to do it with consistency would be appreciated. Okay, number one, I can't fix a problem that you won't fix. Okay, so we have two problems here. One, we have a bad owner in your wife. And you can tell her Jack Spearco says she's a bad dog owner. What you are doing, what she is doing, is abusive. And the biggest problem is it doesn't work. Your dog is not your child. Don't treat your dog like you treat your children. So if your child, by the time they're five years old, completely tears something up, And you discipline for them for that, and whooping their ass is not the thing to do with them, nor the dog. But if you say, hey, you're, you're grounded, they know I did this and now I'm in trouble for it. The dog doesn't understand that. The dog has no idea why she's hitting him, yelling at him, whatever. It is abuse. I would say try to get that episode you mentioned, 1797, try to get her to listen to it. Just say, if you do me a favor and listen to this. And then the other side would be, since you don't want to take responsibility, if you won't listen to it, you got to be, you know your wife and you know how to say this, right? Don't say it the way I'm saying it right now. It will not work well. Since, since you're not going to take care of this, then you don't do anything and I will take care of it. We'll work on it. Let me give you the good news. The good news is you have a puppy. I know you don't think he's a puppy anymore because you got him as a little bitty dog and now he's a year old. He's a puppy. He will be a puppy until he's about two and a half years old. If we include being a teenager and a young 20-something as the puppy years, a dog at three years of age is 21 years old. How responsible is a 21-year-old human? Not very. Not very at all. Okay? Um, and a 21-year-old human that's not properly raised is even a bigger problem, right? But a 21 to 28-year-old person is a lot less reckless, Right, and you can only put so much analogy to the human age, but you get what I'm saying. Dogs settle down. Two and a half, three and a half years, they kind of really settle down. They lose all that nervous energy. Right, so that that that's that's the good news. That in it in of itself, the dog is going to stop doing a lot of this. When I first got our old dog Blackie, man, that dog could not go anywhere without digging a hole and eating something. He ate rocks. He found this rock he became obsessed with. I'm talking like a, a, a rock you can hold in your hand barely in one hand. He chewed on this rock until it was this little bitty piece that I was afraid he was going to choke on. I finally threw it away. He used to carry bricks. Right? So, so you know, dogs have this thing. Uh, so we need, we need to give the dog some attention. Now you say you can't. We got practices and whatever. I don't care if it's at the end of the day and you've done everything and you're freaking tired. You brought a dog in your house. He didn't ask to come to your house. You, I don't care you were in a dentist chair. You said yes. You brought a dog in your house. Take the damn dog out in the yard and throw the ball for him. You know, Give the dog some energy. In the morning, before you go to work, take the dog out. Run the dog. Put a freaking collar on the dog and start jogging. You'll be in better shape. Do something. But at least twice a day, that dog needs to get activities. You know, um, I mean, if you're so stressed that you don't have the time to walk your dog... Then I'm looking at how many activities these kids are in. Because I'm also looking at the health and quality of your family life. I've seen people do this. They literally have no time for anything. And they think they're giving their kids everything they want. But every kid's in two activities all year long. This is what I tell parents about kids and you know sports teams and stuff like that. If you don't have at least a two-month period every year where the kids aren't doing shit, then you're doing it wrong. You're too stressed out. I had this conversation with my son, putting the kid in baseball, football, everything, basketball. Like, 
You know, then if this league's over, then that league starts, and then this league, and like, hey, I want him to be really good. And I, you know what he wants? He wants to spend time with his dad. But you and the kids walk the dog for an activity, right? Practice taking. So on some level, you've got to figure out some time for this dog. If you can't, then it's the dog's your responsibility. So hire someone, hire a dog walker that comes by once a day and walks the dog. If you hired a dog walker, we can crate train the dog. We put the dog in the crate. He can be in there for three or four hours. Dog walker comes, takes the dog out. Dog goes out, walks with the dog walker for half an hour, goes back in the crate. Dog walker leaves. People come home with the dog out. At least now the dog is getting activity. He's getting attention. He's probably going to identify more with the dog walker than you, though. You know, Can we create a kennel run situation for the dog where he can't get himself into trouble? I don't know. But the solution here is activity for the dog and interaction with the dog. And nothing will replace it. But beating the dog, yelling at the dog, is abusive, and no, it won't work. Physical correction and verbal correction can work, but they can't work two hours later. And people think, well, like when they yell at the dog, the dog sulks. Like, and you see people shaming the dog that tore up the couch or whatever, and you see the dog act like, he knows what he did. No, he doesn't. He knows you're angry. You talk to your dog like that when he's done nothing wrong. He'll act exactly the same way. So I don't really know how to do this, but I'm going to put it to you this way. If you're not willing to, then you need to find somebody that is. And whether that's hiring somebody that comes and spends the time on your place, fine, or rehoming the dog. And making sure the dog goes to a good home where somebody has the time to dedicate to the dog. Because it is not right for this dog to be treated this way. He doesn't understand. And you're, you're asking a seven-year-old to spend eight hours a day at home alone and not get into trouble. Think about it that way. You have a seven-year-old child. He can get food out of there. He can feed himself. He can wipe his own butt. He can go to the bathroom. He can do all that stuff. But you don't think a seven-year-old... Didn't they make a movie about it called Home Alone? Right? You don't think a seven-year-old kid is going to get into trouble? That You have a seven-year-old kid. You have a puppy. He needs an outlet. He needs guidance, he needs love, he needs direction. And it's not, it's not right for it not to be there. I, I hate to be that harsh, man, but that's, that's the reality. Try to get that wife of yours to listen to that, that episode. Probably better that episode than this segment. Uh, let's take another one. This one from Dean. Dean says, does comp companion working plant, does companion work, companion planting work? to protect beneficial plants from insects, or is it just breaking up the monocrop? I understand that one plant can provide nutrients, but is there a real secret sauce formula to protecting a vegetable plant with a different plant from insects or disease? If there is, what are some good combinations? Thanks for the advice, Dean. The answer is, it depends. And I do, if you search companion planting on the website, on survivalpodcast.com, many, many years ago I did an episode where I talked about all these different combinations. So those you can look those up. You can listen to that episode to get a more full answer that I can do as a segment in a show like today. Um, but there are limits is a better way to look at this. So if your problem is that you have squash bugs or worse, squash vine borers, From what I have found, there's literally nothing that stops them. Because companion planting, it can be that one plant repels a pest. There is a little bit of that. More likely what happens is, since we create this environment with lots of herbs and flowers and pollination, 
we get a, a, effect, a, a, li a little effect from a lot of things that gives us a big result. So one thing would be just by bringing in all the pollinators. Well, we're going to get more fruit set. we got more pollinators. But if we're bringing pollinators, we're going to bring in wasps. Some of those wasps are going to be predatory. So they're going to start stinging caterpillars and, and stuff. So then we get that. Then, since there's all these different smells and textures and you can't really see what's going on as well as an insect, I'm a little more confused. A confused insect is more likely to be pre you know, predated, uh, predated upon. So they're more likely to get picked off by the ones that do come to eat them. But you know what eats a squash bug? Nothing. Nothing. Now, I've been told, and I've never tried it, that a bunch of catnip. If you have a bunch of catnip, it helps protect you from squash bugs. I've even heard to like grow a big patch of it, and then about the time your squash starts to really get going, with the time when the, the bugs would show up, cut a big old, just big old wreath basically, and wrap it around there, and that'll help with squash bugs. Will not prevent squash vine borers, though. I guarantee you that. Nothing prevents those bastards. So there's a limit to what it can do, but the biggest thing that it does is, is it, it does break the monocrop. That's a big part of it, but that takes the whole pest thing and mitigates it in itself. I'm a pest, right? I'm a pest insect. I like to eat uh, tomatoes. And here is a row of 100 tomatoes. And I think I, my, my in, intrinsic intelligence uh, is, you know, I'm, I'm going to lay an egg. My offspring is going to come, and I am here to perpetuate my species. This is a good place. If there's tomatoes here now, they'll probably be here, tomatoes here again. So I'm going to lay my eggs here, and my, my, my children will come, and they will lay their eggs here. And in the next cycle, there will be more tomatoes. And they don't think it out rationally, but that's kind of how it works. Where if there's a tomato here, and there's a corn there, and there's some beans there, and it's just, it's just not as attractive. So you attract less pests. But there's a limit to how much you can do. People that say if you just companion plant, use good fertilizer, organic fertilizers and compost, you don't have to worry about pests. This is bullshit. There, there's different pests that pop up in different cycles, and we can do things to break them. And the, the best strategy I've come up with is when I find something that really gets hammered by pests in a, in a given area, and whether that's a, 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 an insect pest or a fungal pest or anything, I don't grow it. And I either don't grow it for a season or I don't grow it at all. I'll take a season or two off and try it again. And if it's still a problem, I just find other things that grow. And that's been my best approach. Grow what naturally grows well for you. Last one of the day. This is from Stephen. This is one I've answered many times over the years, but it's one I always have to keep answering because it's one that is it's such a good question, and the answer is probably never what you would think it is. Stephen says... Where do you recommend your listeners go for their news? Where do you get your news? I'm currently listening to 2353 when I mentioned you probably shouldn't listen to Fox News. I'm assuming you feel this way about CNN, MSNBC, NYT, etc. And it made me wonder if you have a recommendation. Attempting to stay informed without subjecting oneself to partisan bullshit seems nearly impossible. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Stephen. Stephen, I would like to quote one of the greatest fiction characters of all time, who's actually based on the greatest, one of the greatest, I wouldn't say the greatest, but one of the greatest fictitious characters of all time, Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if uh, people that are familiar with the, the show House MD was on for, I think, eight seasons. One of my favorite shows. It's a medical, a medical mystery show type thing. Um, but House is Sherlock. That's why Dr. Wilson, Dr. Watson, his house number in the show is 220B. Okay? 
<laughs> if you know Holmes, you got it. If you don't, it doesn't matter anyway, right? So Dr. Greg House, the entire show was initially built on the predication of one thing when he was trying to diagnose an illness. And somebody's like, oh, I never did drugs. Or, oh, we've never cheated. I've never been out of the country. Everybody lies. Everybody lies. Not most people lie. Not the majority of people lie. Not a lot of people lie. Everybody lies. And that's how you have to look at the news. So when I say you probably shouldn't listen to Fox News, I don't mean that you shouldn't use Fox News as a source. I mean you shouldn't listen to it. I like to believe that my listeners actually listen to me. And by that I mean that they give me the benefit of the doubt. They don't think I can never be wrong, but they believe that most of the time I'm right, And they believe that I'm always trying to be correct for them. And I'm always trying to do my best. And when I come out with something that I do have an agenda, I say, this is my opinion versus this is a fact. right? So I like people listening to me and a lot of alternative media you can listen to. That means that you listen to it the way you would listen to your buddy when you were having a beer. you know. By the way, because I can and I felt like it today, I'm having a beer right now. Just one. Um, so we're having a beer together, and you're listening to me. If you listen to Fox News or MSNBC or any of these mainstream sources that way, you are going to believe things that flatly are not true. You know, I saw recently on one of the other networks, um, I beat, here's, first of all, here's why I beat up Fox News. Most of my audience is going to either be anarchist libertarian types, which I don't have to explain anything further than why, But the majority of my audience is actually going to be somewhat conservative right-wing. That's just the demographic I have. It's not anything I try to do. It's just the demographic I have. And generally, that demographic is more concerned with personal responsibility. And therefore, they look at things like survivalism, etc., to more, uh, more degree than the preponderance of the left. So I kick the right to make sure that you understand that I'm not picking a side. I think you understand that I believe that one of the things Trump says about places like CNN with fake news, yeah, is bullshit too. You damn right, I don't think you should listen to them either. It doesn't matter which one, they're going to take their agenda and put it into things. So one of it was like, I think MSNBC or CNN or whatever, I just happened to check their main website. Because what I like to do is see what are the what are the headline stories? And like, are they covering the same thing? If they are, how are they spinning the headlines? That's an interesting little thing to look at. But it said, fact. the bottom said, fact Checking Trump's lies. What? You cannot present yourself as an independent news source if your fact-checking presumes that you're fact-checking lies. If it said, you see, if you were legitimate, you would say something like fact-checking Donald Trump's claims. And when somebody says, well, everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Okay, you have TARD, Trump Anger Resistance Disorder, and if you still have TARD at this point, Let me tell you something. It has gone from its first form, it has mutated to a much more dangerous disease that most people seem to have now that, that hate Trump. And I don't like Trump, but I don't hate, there's a difference in not liking somebody and hating somebody. The, 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 the vehement left that hates Trump, their, their epidemic of TARD has mutated and turned into a new disease, recurrent extreme Trump anger resistance disorder, also known as, yes, you guessed it, Retard. People have retard. And that's that person that looks at that and takes that as an independent news source has retard. Now the problem is when I when I kick the left, I always have to kind of back up and kick the right too, so that you know I'm not picking a side here. 
Because what does Dr. House say? Everybody lies. And the right does the same shit. They, if you, this is the problem with our news source. It's not that they lie. If you just accept that, if you accept everybody lies, if you accept everybody has an agenda, if you accept that the media is nothing but a spin for one side or the other at this point, then the news is actually very useful. It does tell you what's going on, and you can figure out your opinions in a valid way now. But if we take either side, what will happen is we will pick the news outlet. This is why they do it, by the way. The news outlet that most sounds like what we wish to believe, and we'll dial in on that, and, they'll, they'll, and the left will say something like, well, the Fox News people, all they do is listen to Fox News, and now they hear only one side of the story. And at the same time, you idiot, you're only getting the MSNBC side of the story. Well, I listen to MSNBC, and I listen to the Young Turks, and I listen to CNN. So you're getting one side of the story. It's all the same. It's all the same agenda, and therefore the same group of lies. So how do I get my news? I get my news from all sources. I'll turn Fox News on. I'll turn MSNBC on for five minutes. That's all I need. You know, at the top of an hour, you get the, the basic headlines of the day. I'll look on Facebook. There'll be stories there from everywhere. But the first thing I do when I hear a claim is I say, does that even make sense? You know, I, I, the, the stuff that was going around last year, about toward the end of the year, was, you know, Trump repeals Obama-era policy, allowing millions of gallons of poison to be dumped into the ocean. Wait a minute. Were we dumping millions of gallons of poison legally into the ocean? Now, you could make a case that some of the things we dump in the ocean are poisonous, but the way that... Like, does this headline make sense? So then you go look at it. And you see that the policy they're talking about was implemented by Obama, let's say, in 2014. So in 2013, what were we doing? And so you realize it's a bullshit headline. And usually the truth is in the story if you read it With the, with the concept of, I don't believe you, you have to convince me. And, and that, this, what I've been trying to teach people on this show for 10 years when it comes to this type of thing is I don't want to tell you what to think. I want to tell you how to think. Think critically and logically. And dissect and tear down and tear apart things. Now the thing is, how much time a day do you have to spend tearing this shit down? And figuring it out and doing research. And the answer is, you don't have that much time. You have shit to do. You're better off getting some aquariums and selling some foul scenario than just spending all day doing it, unless you're going to turn that into a business. So what people want is they want a source that's so reliable and dependable, if they said it, it's true and that's just the way that it is, and I don't have to fact check it. But everybody lies. Everybody has an agenda. Even me, I have an agenda. I try not to consciously lie. I really do. I, I, I don't know that I've ever come on the air and told you a lie. Meaning I knew I was wrong when I said it and I said it anyway. I just, I can't afford to do that, honestly. Okay? Um, I've been wrong and I've tried to always admit it when I'm wrong. But I, 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 I don't feel that I ever lied on the air. But I guarantee you in my life I've told lies. Anybody who says they haven't is lying when they say it. But when I tell you something that matches my evil agenda, which is to take over the world and let you do what you want to by ignoring you and letting you do whatever you want as long as you don't bother anybody, then I tell you, this is my agenda or this is my opinion. But I'm not a news show. And I don't think I could do a news show like that and not hate myself. So I think the people that would be, the top, people like me that would be willing to do it generally don't. They got more important things to do in their life. So I think the other thing you have to do is, does this affect me? 
Like, there's so many things I see that I think that's a horrible thing. But does this affect me? Not really. It does tell me society's sick, but I already knew that. And then the next question is, does it affect me, and can I do anything about it? And, and telling a bunch of my friends who already think it's sick about it, so that they know too, and they already do know anyway, because everybody else talking about it, doesn't help. So if, if it doesn't affect me, and or I can't do anything about it, I don't put a lot of time into it, other than, oh, there's a thing. And then if it sounds like it really is a big deal, then I'll fact check it. And then if you do that, you can use any of these sources. And you start to realize, this is why I believe they all lie. You know, about 15 years of my life living this way. Oh, they said this? Let me go see. Oh, no, that's bullshit. And the more you know, and the better you get at the pattern recognition, the easier it is to see and do. Because that's, you'll just like, you'll see an article, or you'll hear a news story, and you go, I know what they're going to say next. I know what they're going to say next, and I know how they're going to conclude this. Right? When you see an article about the top tax bracket right now, you know it's related to Oxia Cortez's bullshit about 70%. Even if that article didn't, they, at least they came out and said it. This is what we're talking about. Uh, but it also, you know, it was like, well, it does a lot of good, and anybody that doesn't present it to you this way is either stupid or lying, and it was very partisan. But even if it wasn't, you're like, okay, I know. If you know what's going on, and you see another piece of information over here, you know what it supports or it denies. And then you have to say, just because it supports or denies it, doesn't make it wrong if I don't like it. And, and what I've been telling people for two years now is, stop making me defend Trump. You guys play so much fake bullshit about Trump. That it's like, that's not true. Oh, you're a Trumptonian or whatever. I don't like the guy. I, don't like, I do like some of the things he's done. I think he has done more positive things than any president in my adult lifetime. That's not actually saying a lot, though. But really, I think like the guy just slashed regulations at the executive level. I'm always for less government. I can't be against that. He's finally slowly pulling us out of Syria, and I'm listening to the Democrats, who are supposed to be the party of peace, call for more war and bombing. It's just sickening. But can I do anything about it? No. Does it affect me? Only as much as I allow it to. I'd rather work on my fish tanks. I'd rather make an extra 40 bucks and go buy a case of this really good, real ale, devil's backbone beer with it. it. Just better for me, better for my life, better for my psychology. So that's how you have to use these news sources. Oh, there's a thing. Is it important to me? Do I care first? Do I really care? Okay, I care. Okay, does it affect me beyond me caring? No. Okay. But I care, so is there anything I can do about it without thinking that my nonsense that I shared it with 20 of my friends and told pe 10 people on the other side they're stupid actually did anything. No, I can't do anything about it. Okay, then I, I, I care a lot less all of a sudden. I, because you only have so much you can do and so much you can influence. And if you spend your time and energy on things that you can't influence, then you're not spending it on the things that you can. So even if you want to write a check to help somebody... You can be pissed off about 20 people that you can't help by doing that, or you can go take that time and energy and find the one group or person that you can write a check to help with philanthropy. Way more effective, and you'll feel better. So, number one, cut your diet of news in the first place. Number two, I actually think Facebook is a great place to get the news. Because if you have friends that are both liberal and conservative, you're going to see everything. 
And you can see how they're blowing their mind. The best thing is to watch them lose their minds on both sides. And you realize how stupid it is. And you'll find yourself giving a shit a lot less and feeling a lot better. But you can use these sources for news. Just always, this is how you feel good news. This is a perfect analogy. We can finish up and, and close out for the day. If you were sitting in a bar and there was some loud mouth mouthing off about anything, who the best sports team is, who the best quarterback of all time was, whatever, you might even listen to his loud ass mouth. And if he starts talking, if you're of the school of thought I am, that probably the best quarterback that ever played football was Joe Montana, you might be like, yeah, he's making some points. But if he made some kind of a claim, one time Joe Montana climbed up on top of a mountain and he threw a ball, you know, something like that, you'd be like, well, interesting story. But before I put that in my file of things I know for funny anecdotes that I'll tell my friends, I'm going to fact check that shit. You need to look at Fox News, MSNBC, all the news media, like a loudmouth in a bar. It might, even though he's a loudmouth in a bar, there might be some wisdom there. And if he's talking about what just happened on the street when he's on his way into the bar, it probably did happen. His version of it is probably exactly that. His version of it, and you wouldn't base your life decision-making on it. Do that with the media. Treat them like a loudmouth drunk at a bar, and you can use them for what they're good for, and you can filter out 90% of what they say as being either irrelevant or bullshit, one or the other. That brings us to our uh, closing segment. Our item of the day today is Phariseum rods. This is something that I've talked about a little bit over the years, but I've really never talked about deeply. And the reason is that it's just such a well-known thing. In prepper spaces. A ferrocium rod, in case you don't know, and now you're mad at me for assuming you did, uh, a ferrocium rod is, is just basically a, a metal rod made of an alloy called ferrocium. And ferrocium is a synthetic alloy uh, that basically is a really, the best way to think about it is a soft metal. What do I mean by soft metal? I mean, you could take a knife and you could just, just cut a piece off of it, a nice little thin sliver. If you do that, though, kind of quickly... And I would use the back of your knife for this so you don't mess your blade up and got to just slide through it off there. The little pieces of the synthetic, synthetic alloy come flying off the rod and they burst into hot sparks. How hot? Uh, over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very hot. And if they hit something that's flammable, it catches on fire. So we use these to start fires. So the company that I decided to recommend for you guys to look at is a company called Bayite, B-A-Y-I-T-E. They have tons of different options. I have um, four of them for you today uh, in my article. So you can look them up. One are three-eighths by four inches. Uh, I'm going to start out with the first ones are you get three of them for $11.49. They're drilled and they have little key rings on them. Uh, so they're about four bucks a piece. They're five sixteenths of an inch and just over three inches. You can kind of get that here. It's a little small one. Kind of the best one for a keychain if you don't want it to get bulky at all. And they're inexpensive. Again, about four bucks a piece, and they'll work. They are kind of small, but they're big enough to work. The next one is three eighths by four inches. These are seven bucks a piece. You get a lot more rod, and that means you get a lot more material. You get a lot more fires before it has to be replaced. And in me, a little bit bigger of a piece of ferrocium is a little bit easier to throw that spark off of and get a good set of sparks. If I had to pick one for a keychain as an EDC keychain, that's the one I would pick. Next one um, is a half inch by five inches. Two pack of them, 14 bucks. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Cause I, like, I was talking to a buddy about this. I'm going to get one of those for my keychain. Like, uh, half inch. Oh, yeah, it's kind of small. Like, okay, think about PVC pipe. Half inch PVC. Imagine a piece of five inch PVC pipe on your keychain. Now, if that works for you, like maybe that's your key fob and you put that in your pocket, let your keys hang out, something like that. Okay, sure. And I'll tell you one thing about it. It's a hell of an impact weapon. But if you like that, they make a six inch one. Same half inch, but it's an inch longer. Now you got some. I mean, now you got a Kubaton. So if you wanted to use it like that, it'd work okay with a keychain. This is, I keep six inch ones in like my go bag and my bug out bag. Because I can always start a fire with them. They're big. They're, they can do other things. It's a multi it is an impact tool if necessary. So that's what I use those for. But I've known some people to carry them around. It's a pretty big hunk of metal though. And then we'll go the other way. They have five sixteenth inch by one inch toggles. So think of like a toggle for like a zipper pull or something like that. They have two holes in them, and those holes are about the same diameter as parachute cords. So you can stick parachute cord for them. Uh, a lot of people, you know, you make the survival bracelets, they call them, and you use that for your little clip that holds your bracelet on, things like that. I think these make a lot of sense. Uh, what I did, I am a big fan of Henschel hats. That trademark hat you see so many pictures of me with, that's a Henschel. And I love Henschel's, one of the few hats still made in America, that type of thing. Um, it has a string, an Aussie breezer they call it. it, has a string that kind of like, you know, hangs, oh, you're supposed to put it around your neck so you, your hat doesn't get blown off. I let it just kind of hang almost like it's a ponytail uh, on the back side of me. Um, to me, it's something to hang the hat up with. But I just took, undid the knot, popped one of those on there, and retied the knot. So I've got that wherever my hat goes. And generally, if I'm leaving the house, if I'm going hunt or something especially, that hat's going with me. So it's really EDC then. Even if I lose my keys, I still have that. Uh, you can build, if you have a, if, like on my hunting jacket, I have one into the zipper of my hunting jacket. Because that way, no matter what happens, I will have that ferrous seam rod, I can start a fire. Now, a lot of the ferrous seam rods that are out there, they come with little gadgets and gizmos and kits and stuff. And there's strikers that are made just for them. The back of a knife is all you need to use with a ferrous seam rod. But it is not a bad idea to have something that's a dedicated striker for them in case the knife's not there, for whatever reason. Um, with the first seam rod, one of the best things you can use is a blade, a small blade from a jigsaw. And uh, if you get the ones that have holes in them, there's a couple different kinds of jigsaw blades. Uh, so, but one kind has a little hole in them, they'll go right on a keychain. So you got a jigsaw blade and a first seam rod. You got a great striker. It will th they throw sparks beautifully. Plus, you have a little saw blade. Never know when you can use it kind of like the saw blade in a uh, Swiss Army knife or something. So, uh, I really recommend that one way or another, you put ferrous seam rods into your life. And then in my PS on my review, I have a uh, link to UST's aluminum uh, half-inch base case. This is a little bitty, like a like a big pill bottle, pill, pill case basically. Uh, it's about a half inch in diameter, but it's only I'd say about an inch and a half long, and it screws with an O-ring. And you can stuff quite a few cotton balls in there if you pack them tight. If you got cotton balls and a ferrous seam rod and you cannot start a fire, you need to work on your skills until you can. That's all I'm going to say. Ferrous seam rods are great, and this is why I want you to look at this. I have been teaching uh, the six areas of survival in your lifestyle design from the very beginning based on six things. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, and health and sanitation. Those, and health and sanitation is one, right? Those are the six areas. Well, as far as energy, in general, the energy you can create on demand almost anywhere you go is fire. And let's think about the rest of those survival needs. 
fire cooks our food, it boils water, it warms shelters, it provides security, and it can certainly aid us in sanitation, and it helps us stay healthy. So fire is the linchpin. If we end up in a, a worst-case scenario, that helps us enable all the rest of those needs. So I think it's very important. Read my review. I get a lot of extra info on today's review. Some of them are really short. This one is pretty in-depth and gives you a lot of different options. And Bayite is a great company to get Ferrisium rods from. And I'll just say this, though. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. It's Ferrisium. Ferrisium is Ferrisium is Ferrisium. It's, it's all the same. But they have a lot of options, sizes, form factors that make sense and good pricing. And if like an order gets screwed up or something, good customer service. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is um, by Robert Palmer. And it was his first big hit, even though none of the rest of his music ever sounds like this ever again. It's called Every Kind of People. It's got kind of a Jimmy Buffett Caribbean thing going on in it. Steel drums and all. Um, and it was his first hit. And it was the first thing that really made him a, a big name. Um, Here's how I feel about this song. Like This song's basic premise is that we need all the types of people that are in the world to make the world worth living in in the first place. And I have like a love-hate relationship with that mindset. And it makes me think of my buddy John Willis over at SOE Tactical here. I've been listening to his new new podcast with his buddy Scully called Pulling the Thread. I got a link to his his podcast in the show notes today. And when I listen to John, I'm thinking, how do, how did I never, you know, I've, I've known this guy for 10 years and I've never met him face to face. Like, how did I not grow up next door to this guy? How is this guy not my brother? I mean, when he starts talking about his life, not just his opinions, but his life, like all the work he did with reptiles and stuff, I'm like, my God, this guy is like a, a clone of me or something. Uh, he's like a clone of me that says the F word more, right? Um, so I'm, I'm listening to him. And he was talking about, you know, GoFundMe, and he was like, why don't we just call it Go the F to Work and whatever. And uh, I, I was listening to him, and I, there's a point where I'm listening, I'm going, this guy has contempt for people. Now, not all people. He's one of the best men I know. He's done so much to help me and so much to help other people. He's always coming to life from a service standpoint, but he also looks at a lot of people, and he has contempt for them. I feel the same way. Like, the way I look at it is almost all the problems we have in the world are created by people. There's some typhoons and hurricanes and tornadoes and hailstorms and droughts and shit that are not caused by people. But most of our problems in general are caused by people. But then I have to take the other side of that. Well, all of our solutions come from people. All of our solutions come from people. So people are the source of all our problems, but they're also the only thing we have to solve them with. And that's, that's, that's the way you have to look at songs and, and philosophies like these. Yeah, a lot of people suck, but a lot of people are really great people. I'm old enough, I remember things like the Los Angeles earthquake, when one overpass fell on top of another. And I remember that unlike some disasters where everybody was out for themselves and took from each other, I remember that re regular normal people you know, drug ladders off of work trucks and climbed up into that structure and helped other people get out. 9-11, I'll tell you what I remember the most about 9-11 other than the initial way that it hit me and where I was and all that stuff that everybody remembers. The pictures of people pouring bottles of water on people's hands and face to clean them up and realizing, well, what that means is that person was out of harm's way. They went a couple blocks down the street, 10 blocks down the street, a mile down the street, whatever, bought water and brought it back to help their fellow man. For all the beating up we do of people, they're all we have. And it does take all types of people. 
And I was talking about news and media, in other words. One thing you have to understand, the reason they have all these biases and they play to this is because they're playing to who people are. And almost every single viewpoint has some validity in it because it's based on some sort of problem the person's trying to solve. Now, their view may not, as to the solution, may not work. But generally speaking, one thing that humans are really good at is identifying problems. Not so good at the source, but we're good at identifying this is a problem. This isn't good. We need to make this better. And despite all our problems, every one of those solutions comes from people, too. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.